0: Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, James Carter, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Today, we are changing gear and diving into a short but quick-fire Q&A episode. I'm thrilled to say that we have persuaded our very own Jeff Keane to take this challenge, but if anyone can handle the heat, it is Jeff. Somehow, only now making his podcast debut, Jeff is the Head of Fixed Income at Waverton, a veteran of bond markets. He sits on our Asset Allocation Committee is the lead manager of the Waverton Sterling Bond and Global Strategic Bond Funds, and, before seeing the lights, actually spent the first half of his career as an equities manager. But he is probably best known for his Masters Golf competition, the Jeff Keen Charity Challenge, which, over the years, has raised over £50,000 for charity, and, in its most recent iteration, had 2,500 happy participants. Jeff? It's a pleasure to have you on. Are you saddled up and ready to go? Already, James. Thanks for having me. So I have 13 questions for you, sourced from the most frequently asked questions we have been hearing from our clients. Remember now, this is a sprint and not a marathon, and we are encouraging to-the-point answers, which is not an easy task given the complexity of some of these topics. So without further ado, to start us off, why are mortgage rates so high?
1: Well, I mean I think the first thing I would say is that uh, mortgage rates are actually a lot lower than they were back in the days when I was first buying a house. But anyway, mortgage rates are a function of the UK base rate and that's set by the Bank of England and also by the market's expectation for interest rates over the next few years. Now, the Bank of England has a mandate to keep inflation at 2% and to get there, it's increase interest rates to achieve that objective and that's fed through to mortgage rates. What is the purpose
0: of raising interest rates? And
1: typically, what are the consequences? Well, the Bank of England really only has one tool to manage inflation to its target. And it is a fairly blunt tool in the form of interest rates. But if we look back to 2021, the Bank of England were asleep at the wheel. So inflation at that point was over 5%. And the interest rate was still only 0.25%. And then, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine which made inflation even worse. But the idea of higher rates is that it slows economic activity. So companies have to pay higher rates of interest when financing their companies. And consumers end up paying more for their mortgages and other consumer debt. And that tends to lead to lower levels of disposable income and lead to a slowdown in the economy. And in turn, that should solve inflation. If you think back to the 1990s, John Major famously said, if it's not hurting, it's not working, And that's really the point. High interest rate squeezes the consumer and businesses, and that in theory should help to dampen inflation forces in the economy.
0: All sounds very,
1: very straightforward, Jeff. What caused inflation to rise so
0: sharply, and now hopefully you've brought your crystal ball with you, when will it return back
1: to normal levels? Ah, oh, the prediction questions are always the harder ones. The origins of inflation probably go back all the way to the financial crisis because that's when it became the norm for central banks to engage in quantitative easing or printing money. That didn't really achieve the objective of reigniting growth. But when COVID hit 2020, QE was expanded aggressively by most central banks. And then, of course, after the energy price hike, which followed the Russian invasion of Ukraine, QE was expanded a second time round to help consumers with their energy bills. I think this is the first time in my lifetime when we've experienced governments pouring money directly into consumer bank accounts. and So all of that stimulus has culminated in the inflation we've got today. I think my analogy would be of the damp bonfire, which just won't light and you keep throwing paraffin on it. But sooner or later, that flame will result in a, a mini explosion of your bonfire. And then to extend that analogy, perhaps we took a while to find the hosepipe to put out the fire. And that's where we are today.
0: So we heard what the purpose of raising interest rates were, and we heard the cause of the inflation that's led to higher interest rates. But why has the labour market remained
1: so resilient? I think there are a few possible reasons. And I think that's probably a really tough question to answer now. And I'm sure there'll be lots of people that will tell us the answer to that in years to come. Certainly, the resilience of the employment cycle has been a surprise to many, including me. But as we said, we've seen massive monetary and fiscal stimulus, which really did the job of helping the economy get through COVID and has much longer lasting effects than most people have predicted. So companies were able to pass on higher prices to consumers because wages are rising. And those same companies were reluctant to let staff go, for fear of not being able to get them back. Will there still be a recession? To be perfectly honest, I don't know. But what I do know is that there's a realistic chance of one, and the chance of it affecting Europe, including the UK, in 2024 is probably higher than it is in the US. So in Europe, rates are still at their highs, and the effects of those rates are starting to be felt by mortgage holders and by less well-financed businesses. And even in the US, we're still seeing signs of increasing levels of defaults and delinquencies. So I think it will really depend how quickly inflation normalises and how quickly central banks can cut rates to offset the risks of a recession. The US obviously has been incredibly resilient, as we said, but there's a few pockets of the economy which are still in distress. The property sector, for example, which is starting to be seen in the results of a few smaller banks in the US. So probably a little bit early to celebrate victory over recession risk just yet. What
0: does a soft landing mean? It's a phrase that's used so often at the moment. And why is it so hard to achieve?
1: Well, it's hard to achieve because economic forecasting is really difficult. And a central bank, when it's searching for that nirvana or a soft landing, it has to predict exactly how much monetary tightening in the form of higher rates it has to put in place to engineer that slowing of inflation in tandem with an economy which can avoid a deep recession. There are countless examples in history in which central banks got that hopelessly wrong. But if we can get that combination of lower inflation and growth not being too negative, that would be the soft landing that they're seeking. Will interest rates and
0: in turn mortgage rates return to the very low levels we saw between 2009 and 2021 or have we entered a new normal?
1: I doubt we're going to see a return to those lower levels over a sustained period. Partly, I think the inflation genie is out of the bottle and it's going to take some time to reverse that. Obviously, if we get a really sharp economic slowdown, I think that central banks will slash rates aggressively, but I wouldn't expect us to go back to an environment where interest rates are below the level of inflation for an extended period. I mean, there are a number of long-term deflationary forces out there still, high levels of debt, ageing populations, the impact of new technology. But today, we also have some new trends, that of onshoring, which is increasing costs to a certain extent, and also the need to invest in sustainable energy, which is still not the cheapest form of energy. And I also think that commodities have a good chance of appreciating in this coming decade. Simply because demand is still going up and the amount of expiration has really not kept up that demand. So I would expect to see upward pressure on commodities. All those things lead me to think that probably inflation going forward is going to be a bit higher than we've seen perhaps over the last 10 years.
0: You're halfway there, Jeff, and I'm <laughs> going to turn up the heat now. With all of this in mind, what is the case for
1: buying equities at this juncture? Well, every bond manager wants to be asked that question. And I can feel my equity team colleagues bracing themselves as I kind of think of an answer. (laughs) Obviously, I'm the bond guy, and I had my biases, and my view won't tie up entirely with my colleagues, but here we go. I mean, I think over the long term, equities have a very high probability of beating the return of bonds. That's just the payback you get from taking a bit more risk. If we look at the equity market today, companies are making good returns, and valuations outside of a handful of U.S. stocks are generally pretty good valuations. Not exceptionally cheap overall, but not expensive either. So, for example, you can buy U.K. equities on a PE of 11, Latin America on 9, China on 8. In fact, all of the markets outside of the U.S. are trading on about 13 times. So those are not demanding multiples. So, yes, again, I can feel my equity colleagues wincing at my very simplistic analysis because they will prefer to look at sustainable cash flows for their companies. And on the whole, they've been pretty good. But if you just stick to my very simplistic view, if you look at the US, it's on trading on 20 times earnings, which looks a bit more of a stretch to me. And then if we look at the so-called Magnificent Seven Stocks, they're trading on about 29 times. and Those seven stocks are worth $11 trillion, which is about five times the size of the UK economy. And expected to keep growing at somewhere like 25% for the foreseeable future. So me as an old-fashioned value investor, I think I struggle with that a bit. But I have to acknowledge that my caution has been 100% wrong in the last few years. So what do I know?
0: So moving rapidly back to your home territory, after witnessing some of the worst losses in the history of the asset class in 2021 and 2022, what is the investment case for bonds
1: from here? Well, you would expect a bond man to be positive on his asset class, wouldn't you? And I'm not going to disappoint our listeners. But I would add that if you'd asked me the question almost any time in the last 10 years, I would have been a lot more cautious about bonds and more positive on equities. But I'm more positive on bonds today for two key reasons. One, because the valuation of bonds is much more attractive than at any point in recent history. But also, too, because I do see that potential for disappointment in the economy and for company profits, which would lead people to look for safe havens like bonds. But in the long term, I do still think that equities will outperform bonds.
0: i sure that was very difficult for you to admit, Jeff. So thank you for that. What is your biggest area of optimism for markets in 2024? And what's your greatest point of concern?
1: Well, I guess as a bond investor, I'm always thinking about downside. So the upside question is always more tricky. But I think AI definitely looks like a game changer. I think there's a long way to go. But ultimately, it looks like it could potentially give us some massive productivity gains. I suspect a bit like in the dot-com boom, these things will take some time to come through. So to the extent that people want to price those in in the very short term, I think that's probably overly ambitious. On the downside, I think that's a lot easier for me. And I think my concern is that actually this time it's not different. So all those leading indicators that we are looking at today, which are flashing red about the risk of a recession, maybe they are right. And uh, maybe we're just being impatient to see the signs of it. So that would be my concern that we're about to go into uh, a period of slower growth, which um, will be a nasty surprise for many people.
0: Very safely played, Jeff. Well done. This year marks your 40th anniversary of working in finance. I'm sorry if that was a tightly kept
1: secret. (laughs) What are your most memorable investment decisions over that time? Well, I think my mind goes back to 1987. Now, I started about 1984 or so. So I was quite junior back then. And um, I'm not really sure I could really take the credit for investment decisions. But I worked for an insurance company and worked in the investment department. And my colleagues were taking a really negative view of the market back then. So it was a team of quite stubborn contrarians. And at the time, they were getting heat from the board because the stock market was soaring and we were holding cash for about 30% of portfolios. But then, of course, we got to October. So there was a hurricane in the UK on the Friday, which meant the UK stock market was closed that day. But the US market was starting to crack which meant that on that Saturday, and I remember this vividly, picking up the Saturday FT and the headline saying, the bull market is over. And there was that sudden realisation that my colleagues were correct. And we saw the FTSE fall more than 20% in the next two days and another 15% in a couple of weeks after that. So that was obviously a great vindication of a fundamentally driven strategy and taught me a lot about the benefits of contrarian thinking. But you know, more recently, James, it's a story that you've heard me tell quite a few times now, the story of the run-up to COVID and how we managed to shift our bond funds ahead of the markets moving. So I was on holiday in Bali at the time, in January 2020, when we first started to hear the scary reports of a deadly virus in China. And while there in Bali, I was seeing firsthand the impact on the hotel business, so the hotel which we visited next door would normally have been full of Chinese tourists. And it was literally empty. And I remember flying back to the UK at the end of January. And that was a day when the first Chinese tourist was found with COVID in Rome. And at that point, it started to become clear that this was not going to be a local Chinese issue. This was going to be a global issue. But incredibly, the S&P kept going up for another two weeks. So there was a little um, window of opportunity there to take some risk off the table. And We did that pretty aggressively reducing our exposure to credit in the bond funds. And that was part of the reason that we navigated that particular crisis really well.
0: Final two questions. I want you to make two predictions for us, Jeff. Who do you think will be the next president of the United States?
1: Honestly, I don't have a clue. Our colleague Bill Dinning, who's an avid political watcher, tells us it's a 50-50. But if you force me to make a prediction, I'm going to go for Michelle Obama. And uh, if that turns out to be true, you'll think I'm a genius.
0: And finally, the most crucial question of all, who will win the Euros this summer? And does it begin with
1: an E and end with a England? Yeah, supporting football can be a painful process. And I speak as a Chelsea fan, so you'll know where I'm coming from. But when it comes to internationals, we English feel that you know we deserve to win. And the expectation levels always rise, despite the quality of the team, to ridiculous levels before any tournament starts. But actually, I think we're certainly in the mix. We got very close last time, so I don't see why we don't uh, stand a really good chance of uh, going all the way this time. So come on, England. And breathe, Jeff. You've made it through the gauntlet. You were
0: concerned about being thrown under the bus when I suggested this to you, but it was the bus that we should have been concerned about, the well and truly coming off on top. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you all for listening to the Winevest podcast. We'll see you again in a few weeks. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, James Carter, and our guest this week, Jeff Keane. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not like us, subscribe, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided does not constitute investment advice, and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.